Um, I have a, a small story about this actually with my daughter. The other day we were walking to school and she said, oh, I really want desserts. And I was like, it's, you know, eight in the morning. <laughs> and she was like, no, I really want dessert. And she just like stopped and she's five. Like, I was like, I can't, we take, you know, we were taking the subway. I was like, I can't carry you. Like, what am I going to do? So we're going to have to talk about this. <laughs> so we were talking for like a really long time and I was telling somebody else the story and I was like, you know, does she want a dessert and all stuff? And then finally there was like a coffee shop and I was like, oh, and then she said to me, she's like, okay, I have an idea. We can go to that coffee shop and then I can get something there. And I was like, and it was great. And then she got a chocolate croissant. And then the person who was selling the story to said, oh, so you gave in, you gave her a dessert. And I was like, well, is chocolate croissant really a dessert or is that breakfast? I don't know. I feel like we both won there. Yeah. So I was happy with that negotiation. She, and also she got to school. Like you, you have know, to, yeah, you have to keep five. the end goal in mind. Yes, on time even. Yeah, on Very time impressive. is huge. Yes. That is a banner day. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of What's Off, the podcast where we shine the spotlight on off-Broadway innovation. I'm your host, Nikki Maggio. And I'm your other host, Ashley J. Hicks, a.k.a. Ash. For today's episode, we're joined by Art New York's co-executive director, Risa Shoup. Risa, welcome to What's Off. Thank you. It's great to be here. Risa, go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, as Ash said, I am a co-executive director of Art New York, and I'm also a board member of Naturally Occurring Cultural Districts New York, The New Majority, the Invisible Dog Art Center, and the American LGBTQ Plus Museum. I'm clearly an overachiever, and I love to cook, and I live in Brooklyn with my wife and our daughter and our cat. So Risa, today's episode is about caregiving. Can you tell us who you were speaking with at the top of the episode? I was speaking to Roberta Pereira, executive director of the Playwrights Realm. Roberta is not only a working parent, but the Realm is innovating new and exciting ways to support caregivers throughout the artistic process. We're going to hear a lot more from Roberta later in this episode. But first, Risa, Nikki and I have another question for you. You are a caregiver yourself. And when we decided to do an episode on caregiving, we wanted you to conduct the interviews. Can you tell us who else we're going to hear from today and why you chose to speak to them? Yes. Well, as you said, I am a parent. Uh, my wife and I have a three-year-old daughter and at the end of August, we're expecting our second child. Um, you know, I'm also someone's friend. Um, clearly I'm someone's wife. I'm a daughter. Um, you know, I think that caregiving shows up in my life outside of work in many different ways. And I also think about caregiving as it relates to being a leader in an arts organization. So I started to think about people who share those aspects of my experience. As it happens, all of the people I spoke to are parents, but I also want us to consider caregiving more broadly, which led me to some very interesting conversations about what it means to be a caretaker in our industry. In addition to Roberta, we'll also hear from two other arts nonprofit leaders and a Tony-nominated Broadway actress. In total, we recorded over four hours of content during these interviews. Editing this episode was a great challenge and there was so much we wanted to include. Even though we had significantly cut down our content, we were really able to highlight some remarkable caregiving gems and stories. I'm so excited to learn more. Okay, listeners, let's hand it over to Risa so they can turn the spotlight on caregivers. Let's start with a couple of my colleagues, Lindsay and Michael Sag. 
Lindsay Sag is the Deputy General Manager at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, and Michael Sag is the Managing Director at WP Theater. We started by chatting about our weekend plans, but as you'll hear, the conversation was quickly right to the point. When you have kids and work in this industry, which is what we're here to talk about today, Mm -hmm. you push hard Monday through Friday, as hard as you possibly can in the Mm -hmm. hopes of protecting your time on the weekends to engage with your kids. Mm -hmm. And then you feel a sense of responsibility to like triple down on the weekend and make sure that the kids know that you're still their parent and you're still around to like do things with them. And so you, uh, uh, where we are back to the ways of pre-pandemic planning our weekends with an inch of their lives. uh, And it leaves very little breathing space. So you're right. I mean, for us too, Sunday nights is like, oh my God. So- you know, you both are in a relationship and a partnership as two people with robust careers in the arts. And as you know, I am also married to someone with a demanding job in this business. Um, And so it is with compassion and genuine interest that I want to ask you, how do you manage that? How are you able to care for yourselves and for one another and all of the people in your various communities? Um, I think that the, the key thing, uh, for me has been having an incredible partner, um, which I acknowledge not everyone has. Um, We have, it it was, we've had a lot of conversation about emotional loads, um, about physical loads, about who is responsible for for what, um, you know, arguments about mowing the lawn and doing the laundry and, you know, the constant chores that go, uh, with life. Um, and of course the things that are added to that when you have children, like finding caregivers and who's the first emergency contact and things like this. But, um, we have at different points in our careers, um, allowed each other to, um, maybe take a step forward in one of us, maybe I, I took a step forward in my career a couple of years ago and Michael saw that there was a need for him to step on, uh, step up in a way that, um, he hadn't necessarily before. Uh, the example is that we were taking turns driving our baby to daycare at that point. Our big kids were in school already taking the bus, thank goodness. Um, and I was just stressed beyond belief. And he said, I'm going to take Elliot to and from school every day. So you don't have to add that time to your load and you can just focus on your job. And it was like a total game changer for me and to have a partner who understood and saw that I needed that in order to do a thing for my career, which helps to uh, fulfill a need that I have personally, professionally, and to demonstrate to our children this good partnership. It was all just, you know, it's like, it's not all sunshine and roses all the time. There's lots of arguments. There's lots of fights about it, but we communicate a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, having somebody who you can talk to, who you can say, look, you're not holding up your end of the bargain here. We need to recalibrate who's doing which, because I feel like I'm doing more than you. Um, we just get through those moments together. Um, and, it's, it's been working. One of the things that we really learned is that we don't have to be as fixed. We can be flexible. And 
once you identify that there is flexibility within the framework, you start engaging in the conversation of what will support you in this moment? How can we together accomplish a set of goals? And as Lindsay said, there, there's not only arguments, but there's there's stumbling blocks. There are periods of time when we've both made plans to be doing something at the same time, and one of us has to cancel that set of plans. Or our babysitter who picks up a few days a week cancels and we're in the city, and one of us has to get out of the city right away to make sure that there's a parent around for the kids when they get home. And I think it's about constantly revisiting the structures we've got and saying, can we find more flexibility? Can we be nicer to each other and it's really I mean I count ourselves as very lucky that we haven't found that moment where we're like well we're all fucked mm-hmm. we didn't make it we, we can't accomplish this something's gonna break here um, and I think part of part of that flexibility really ties into my role as leadership of my organization and the understanding of my organization that sometimes I'm gonna hang up in the middle of a phone call and run out the door mm-hmm. like when the school calls and says it's not an emergency, but you need to come get your kid right now. Yeah. I'm headed out of the city and I'm getting my kid. Mm-hmm. Um, my my institution is really, really sensitive to that. That's something that I was very forthcoming about when I joined, that sometimes I'm going to be pulled out and sent somewhere uh, to deal with a childcare issue or whatever issue, and that's just going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's I'm not trying to be an asshole, but sometimes I am going to be like, I'm so sorry, you guys. Something's come up. I have to hang up on this call, and I have to head out right now and manage it. Uh, and and the cohort around me at my office has been really a hundred percent supportive when that has happened. As much planning and strategy as we put into how we balance our schedules and our lives, that's just never the way it works out at the end. And you have to have the ability to move on the fly. Can you describe for us just like what does balance look like for you? For me, it is the ability to put 100% or close to it into my job when I'm at my job and put 100% into my family when I'm with my family. And um, because of the nature of the work and my role in it at MTC, I felt like I was constantly waiting for something to happen that I would need to address. And Mm -hmm. therefore, I was always looking at my phone, um, worrying about the artists, especially during, you know, the height of COVID as we returned to live um, theater in the fall of 2021. I mean, it, it was just constant. When is the next negative test or positive test going to affect our lives and who's going to be at the theater and sending the audience away? Um, and while I know that my children, at least I hope that they understand that mom and dad have important jobs and that we care about our jobs and hopefully we're modeling for them a passion and dedication and commitment to our professional lives. I just also want to be there more for my kids and being able to work in a more hybrid model allows me to do that. Um, I can attend more concerts and parent teacher conferences and things, um, than I was able to before. And some of that is also, like my own doing. Mm-hmm. I, I As I've grown up, I have learned better to say what I need. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I understand that I come at this at a place of privilege, but because I am where I am in my career, I can say I need to leave and I will get my work done, but I'm not going to work 10 to 6 today 
or I need this day off so I can chaperone my child's trip. Um, and I did that at Manhattan Theater Club too, but because I was the one of the leaders, um, I felt really guilty mm-hmm. when I did that. Um, and because I'm a smaller fish in a bigger pond, it's just, uh, I don't have that sense yeah. in the same way. I think it's really important that as leaders, mm-hmm set that example for our staff. That's what I was going to say. Yes, Our staff Mm -hmm. has been, this culture, the culture of theater is ingrained as you have to drop everything at every moment and jump in and do whatever you need. And so, I mean, I think I take advantage of it more than my staff does, but I believe that when I say, when I stick my hand up and say, this is what I need right now, it sets the tone of permission for all of them to say, hey, this is also what I need here. And sometimes I stick my hand up and I say, this is what I need, but I know that's not realistic. So how do we all come together to solve for that so that I can have the thing that I need and you guys can all have the support and things that you need. And so that you also see that example as well of when you put your hand up, that doesn't automatically mean you get the thing that you need, but we're all going to get together and figure out how to navigate forward that feels good for everybody. Uh, yeah. That's a real learning curve. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, um, uh, older generation leadership in the American theater doesn't embrace that conceit. They take what they need for themselves mm-hmm. and don't often give the grace to others to sort of say, and you are also entitled to this. Whether you're the most junior or the most senior employee, there's an opportunity for you to put your hand up and say, here's what I need in this moment. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And if I may, I would like to share that I was inspired by my uh, predecessor at Manhattan Theater Club, Flori Siri, who's the managing director at um, Yale Rep. When she came to work at Manhattan Theater Club, I was a company manager and she promoted me to associate general manager. And she had two school-aged children, one of whom has special needs. And she had priorities other than her job at Manhattan Theater Club. And she had to, she went to parent teacher conferences. She had to leave in the middle of the day sometimes because there was a need. And I was like, oh, she's not just here until nine o'clock every night. And she also has a robust um, social life and um, curiosity about other arts, going to museums and ballet. And it was inspiring me, in, inspiring to me to see that she could be. Um, so well-rounded and have a family and be the leader of this major institution. And I hadn't really seen that. Um, And so when it became my turn to have a family, first of all, I knew that I would be able to go to her and she would understand. But even when I, our oldest is 13, and when I was home on maternity leave with her, I realized that theater office hours do not mesh with daycare hours. And Mm -hmm. we lived in the suburbs. And so... I, you know, like a scared little kitten called Flory and said, I, I can't work 10 to six anymore. I have to work nine to five so I can commute home and pick up Jordan by that six o'clock or they're going to charge me a dollar a minute for when I'm late. Um, and we worked it out. Um, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. And it was my first lesson in, you know, ask for what you need. And it wasn't always easy. Um, and sometimes we had to switch off who was doing it, but to, to have that, um, was really important. And, and I, just as Michael was saying, you know, I, I hope that 
women and men or non-binary folks coming up under us um, who want to have families or whatever it is in their personal yeah. life. It doesn't have to be children that is very important to them, that they find that balance, that they ask for what they need so they can do that. And I also think it ties into what I was talking about a few minutes ago um, in seeing people and listening to people and getting to know the people that you work with because you build those relationships and it's not only good for your working conditions and makes the more junior person feel seen, but hopefully when I come with a need and I need someone to have my back, they're going to see me as somebody who always has their back and we have that mutual respect. Michael and Lindsay talked a lot about how important their partnership is to helping them balance family and career. That's really true for me as well, but that isn't the only way caregivers can make it work. I next sat down with another arts leader to learn about how it all comes together for her. I'm Roberta Pereira. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm the executive director of the Playwrights Realm, and I'm a Latina cis woman. Thank you so much. Um, so first question, how did you find yourself in your current role as executive director of the Playwrights Realm? Um, I actually had been working for about five years for a Broadway production company. So I was working in commercial theater, really immersed in that space. And when I was thinking about my next step, I was really thinking of something that was more in line with my values and by that, I mean, there's amazing things happening on Broadway. And I would especially think in the last few years, there are amazing change that's happening. But at the end of the day, it's a commercial venture, right? So the point of the commercial venture is to increase profit. And I think that a lot of times that will come at the expense of the people. Yeah. And so especially as a woman of color, as an immigrant, as a Latina, I really wanted to work in an organization that was centering people and centering these values. And so I was looking for my next step and this position opened up and I thought it was like the perfect, you know, that was perfect for me. And so I applied and got in and I've been here almost eight years, I think. So it's been a while. That's incredible. It feels, uh, it feels like yesterday. Um, you referenced your values and I would love if you could take a moment to share with us, like, what are those values? Yeah, I would say that as it, you know, as it relates to art, especially, I just think that art is better when more people can participate and there are less barriers, right? And barriers are a lot of things, like sometimes price is a barrier, but that in a way is kind of an easy one, right? It's sort of like, oh, we'll go and offer cheaper tickets. But then people are like, wait, the people that I want are not coming and I'm offering cheap tickets. What's happening? Well, that's not the only barrier, right? There's a lot of people that do not feel welcome in the arts, right? And I'm talking about people that are not in whatever the center, the, the majority is, right? Uh, and so when I was mentioning in, in those rooms in the commercial theater on Broadway, especially, I was usually the youngest person around the, the you know, the table of producers, especially. I was most times the only person of color, um, the only immigrant as well, or one of a handful. And so, so I think that this is, and caretaking is another area of that too, right? Like that's another barrier mm. uh, to participation. Can you tell us how your various identities, um, an immigrant to the U.S., a parent, um, an ED, et cetera, uh, affect your practice of caregiving? Yeah, I think that 
all of these things are linked. And I think that this is the other important part about the conversation within our field as well. It's like you can't turn off a part of your identity, mm -hmm. you know? So the way that you lead, the way that you are in a creative room, like it's all connected. And I think for a long time, the idea in our field was that you, you had to turn off parts of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So you had to be, if you were in a room, it was like, it's not professional to talk about your children or whatever, right? Um, and so I feel, and other parts of your identity as well, is like, oh, that don't bring that up. Like, don't bring your sexuality, your gender identity, whatever it is, right? Um, so I think that uh, there has been a big change in our field at least I have noticed that about understanding that people have to bring in their whole selves. But beyond that, I think the important part is that bringing your whole selves is actually what makes us better. Mm -hmm. Like that actually makes the field and makes the art better. Yeah, I, I totally um, find myself approaching my life similarly. And I, I should add one thing too, that uh, it's an important part of my identity because I am a solo parent by choice, mm -hmm. which means that first of all, I don't have a partner, yeah. right? Because there's no option, like if it's just me. And because my family lives in Brazil, it's mm -hmm. rare that they're here. Like when my mom is here, I'm like, oh, this is the best thing. I could just go and there's somebody. This is what, this is a dream, you know? And, but obviously like for me, my journey to becoming a single parent is a little bit different because I made this choice from the beginning. So there's a lot of great things about it too that I thoroughly enjoy, but it definitely comes with some more complications. Yeah. As Roberta mentioned, she became a nonprofit leader after a career in commercial producing, and she alluded to the fact that the profit sometimes comes at the expense of the people. I wondered if that would ring true for someone who has had a high-profile career performing eight shows a week on Broadway. Amber Gray has been seen as Helene in Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 at Ars Nova, Casino, and on Broadway, as Persephone in Town at New York Theatre Workshop, Edmonton's Citadel, London's National Theatre, and of course, on Broadway, for which she received a Tony Award nomination. Her most recent visit to the Great White Way was in Macbeth alongside co-star Daniel Craig. Not only is she a parent who has to provide care for her children, she's a hardworking actor who also has to care for herself. So you, you have a rigorous life as a person, as a performer. Um, how, how do you care for yourself within all that rigor? Oh, what a beautiful question. I have different opinions about how you take that care. I decided last year, well, going back into the schedule of eight shows a week after the pandemic, I only did it for a few months with Hades Town, and then I took a limited run knowing that one would allow me to get out of Hades Town, and then also it would be done in July. It was only like 12 weeks or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. um, which I did on purpose because I wanted to be with my family again. That nesting period during the pandemic was just the nail in the coffin of like, I have not, I don't know my family anymore and I have not been spending enough time with them. Mm. It was crystal clear. So I really resented going back to that schedule. Um, I have many ideas about how the theater structures could change, which, you know, I would love to get into. Um, but it's difficult, right? Like what I learned while I was in it, oh, 
one, when you're, do, when you're doing a year long contract for eight shows a week, that's like being an Olympic athlete. You know, people don't realize it's not, it's not just eight shows. It's like, it's maintenance rehearsals. It's put in rehearsals all the time because often those big machines are not well covered, particularly after pandemic. And it was like unclear what sort of coverage we even needed dealing with COVID. You're having emergencies all the time. It's like a, a chronic anxiety environment, which does take a toll on your, your own personal hormones after time, right? So some days it's like you're waking up at five to go to a morning show and you still have a two show day, you know, um, that kind of a body just doesn't work like that. Like we understand an opera land or with sports or with weight training, you know, bodybuilders, my parents are bodybuilders when I was growing up that you, after you exercise certain muscle muscles and you use that exertion, you have to rest in order to do it again. We're not, Commercial theater in particular isn't doesn't really embrace rest and relaxation culture. It doesn't honor that a performer needs to do that. There are all sorts of ways I was able to take care of myself to survive that schedule. But now that I've been out of it for a year, it's been really clear how unhealthy I actually was. I started, I basically got a whole bunch of hormone tests done and that was all out of whack. So it's taken me some time to heal my body. And even though I wasn't in the schedule, it wasn't like I could automatically go back to rest and relaxation. My body wouldn't do it because it had been in fight or flight mode for so long. It wouldn't rest no matter how much I was kind of training it to do so. So I've actually spent a lot of the last eight months studying different somatic therapies and I'm I joke lately that I'm going to like start some program for actors. I really think I can really nerd out on this for a while. I think people know the obvious ones, like trying to train your circadian rhythms or like uh, yoga, you know, Qigong, whatever. Uh, but really like trauma somatic therapies, like uh, tapping, EMDR, havening, mm-hmm. ways to kind of get some of these emotions out of my body that were really stuck there. That was the only way I could start relaxing again I had to retrain my parasympathetic nervous system to work again because you know call it what you will it depends on the language if you're positive or negative you're like I'm excited to go on stage or I'm nervous to go on stage it's kind of the same physical body response it's like mm-hmm. you're a little sweaty a little shaky a little jittery maybe you <laughs> have the shit you know it's all the same physical response because your lizard brain doesn't have a sense of humor and you're having this physical reaction which really is just cortisol being rushed through your mm-hmm. body eight times a week, which you're not supposed to have, right? Like maybe once every three months when a bear is chasing you, that's an okay hormone to have in your body, but not eight times a week. And definitely in those long runs, I'll start to lean towards depression when my life on paper looks really great, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I look in the mirror and like my face starts to get misshapen. My hair is falling out. Like my hormones are messed up because I'm living in this very high adrenaline cortisol place. And it's not easy to do because we don't ha- we're not we're never given the time to do it. I mean, I'm not a performer, but I, um, you know, I, I can find resonance with this in my life uh, as a working parent. You know, it just yeah. it's finding time to transition is not it's never an offer that's made and something you have to eke out. And when Uh you're dealing with like all of that cortisol, you have very, it's very hard to understand what is actually urgent because you live in an environment where everything is urgent all the time. So far, you've heard mostly about how the folks I interviewed balance their careers with caring for their families and themselves. 
But What's Off is a podcast about innovation in the theatrical workplace. So I wanted to talk about how care shows up inside organizations. How are arts leaders operationalizing care in their institutions? Here's Michael. Uh, I was inspired a few years ago to really take my personal experience of care and needs and put it into the budget of my institution. Mm. Um, someone, someone suggested, it was at a conference, the Statera conference actually, and someone suggested, you know, does it, how hard is it for you to allocate 1% of your budget to care? Mm. Whatever that looks like for you. And I was like, well, I don't think it's that hard. Let's just do it. Let's just, I'm just going to put this money aside. And I mean, it wasn't easy, but it, once I made that decision, the doors were wide open for what that care could look like. So I floated the idea to my institution that we needed um, a child care fund for all of the artists that we work with. Um, I have to say like 60% of the artists with children refuse to participate because they're like, save that money for someone who needs mm. it more than me. And I'm like, that money is for you, please yeah. take it. Um, but it's really been, and we send, we send that language in every offer that we make to every artist, like, please take advantage of this. They're micro grants, but they might offset the cost of additional childcare during production. It's not free. We recognize that. And it's actually one of the conversations I had while I was the general manager of the Williamstown Theater Festival. One of the artists came to me and we were talking about schedule and she's like, this is the maximum amount of time I can give you. At that point, I will be spending too much money to participate. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of, it was kind of shaking to me. I was like, right, right because I can calculate how much money you're gonna make by being here. Mm -hmm. And I understand what childcare expenses look like. So when the idea was floated, like just allocate some portion of your budget, I was like, sure, let's see what happens. And it's really been quite the gift. I also think that once you start that conversation or any sort of structured conversation about how can we allocate resource in a different way that's more thoughtful for the artists that we're working with, again, the world of you start you start the process of thinking about, well, how else can I be supportive? And was this so hard? Well, it wasn't so hard. And, you know, I allocated $5,000 for this and only $2,000 got used. So what can I do next year with mm. an extra $3,000? Mm -hmm. And it's a tiny little part of our budget. It's like inconsequential. But every single time we send that offer with a paragraph that says we have a caregiving fund, I get an email back from someone that says, this is totally amazing. Like, where did this come from? And I explain it. And I'm like, please take advantage of it because if it doesn't get used, it'll eventually get absorbed back into our operations. We want you to take advantage of it. Um, and there's, I think it also sets a real tone with the artists that we work with about where we're at mm -hmm. institutionally. Like this is what you can expect when you come to work at WP. We are already thinking about the ways in which we can care for you as an artist. And once you sort of decide institutionally that the answer shouldn't be no, then you start really exploring how every answer can be yes doesn't work out every time you know this, mm -hmm. but when you start by saying, how do we get to yes in this question? How do we support this person where they're from? Uh, it really changes the culture of the institution and, and allows more people, again, to stick their hand up and say, hey, that was so great. Here's the thing that I need. Can we talk about it? Can we figure it out? I also asked Roberta how caretaking is being institutionalized at the playwrights realm. I would say that it's just like part of the conversation now mm -hmm. and it's not like just this one thing that we do it like it it you know it's across the entire organization 
But even more than that, I think that now that we are known for that, right? So uh, like we have artists that will come, that want to work with us Mm -hmm. because of that, right? And we have other organizations that will reach out to talk to me about our experience and how we did this. Um, Because, you know, and as I said, you know, I'm an executive director, so I understand. I understand the barriers. I understand the questions you get. Um, But... I think that the payoff, like the the ROI, if you want to talk about this, right, the return on investment is so good, you know, and it's sort of like, and so we've just created this and now it's part of the culture, I would say. And so that is, that makes it easy. And so people know, and I think it also opens the doors for other kind of support. It's like, I can't say yes all the time, but like, I want to hear what you need and we're going to like talk about it. And maybe we're going to come up with something that we both can live with. You know, um, but I would say in terms of, of your original question, like the biggest thing in, ter- in terms of what we have done at the realm is that we have taken the burden off the artists about asking for these things. Um, what is the Radical Parent Inclusion Project and how does it work? Yeah. So this was something that uh, we began uh, working together with PAL, the Parent Artist Advocacy League and our, our good friend, Rachel Spencer Hewitt, mm-hmm. uh, on, I was like, when was that year? It was pre-pandemic, 2018, something like that. Um, a lifetime ago. Yes, a lifetime ago. And I essentially had this idea of what would it, would it be like to do an off-Broadway show that was radically inclusive to caretakers. Um, and so literally every part of the process was thinking about that. Like we intentionally hired caretakers and, and we use the term caretakers, even though the acronym has parent, but because we also wanted to include people that had adult dependents. Mm. So there's a lot of people that, you know, will take care of their parents, for example, that's the most common one, but that's not the only one. We had other people that, uh, had like, uh, disabled sibling or something like that, or like, you know, other people in in their life that they were mainly responsible for. And so it was inclusive. And we actually had a few people working that had both, that had a child and were taking care of a parent, right? Um, And so we wanted to be inclusive of all of those. And so the idea was literally looking at every part of the process. So we offered babysitting during auditions, for example, because that's the thing, right? Actors come in and they're auditioning, like half an hour tops from waiting to doing the thing, but then you have to pay a babysitter for two hours or whatever you have to pay because like, what what are you going to do? So essentially, you know, you are having to spend money to interview for a job. If you think about it like that, you know, Uh, we changed our rehearsal schedule. So we did the five day, which now is a fairly common thing. But um, so we had five days of rehearsals for, you know, people that are not in theater might not know this, but the usual schedule was that you only have one day off and you work for six days. And so a lot of times parents, and a lot of times the day off is actually a weekday. A lot of times it can be Monday. And so parents sometimes would like not see their children because they would come back when the children were in bed and then mm-hmm. the children go to school and then you, you know, and then you don't have a weekend. And then obviously that gave, that pushed, there's a bigger burden on the other parent that was alone with the children on the, on the weekend, for example. And then we offer stipends. This is the easiest one that people can do. We offer stipends for, uh, caretaking. So you could just, you had to show us receipts obviously and all of that, but everybody could ask for up to a certain amount. Um, and then we had a childcare matinee, 
which was great. And so basically you could drop off your child at the theater. Uh, it was it was actually the same building. So you dropped off at the same building and then you went to see the show and then you picked them back up. We had Broadway babysitters mm-hmm. taking care of them. Uh, and that was a huge success actually. And so, yeah, all of these, all of these things that we we tried and, and uh, me and Rachel actually co-authored an article for American Theater Magazine, which we really outlined all of the things. Not everything was successful. For example, the child care for the auditions, for the drop-in auditions, not a lot of people used it. So it was like a lot of money for these babysitters that were just like hanging out. And then, but for the people that used it, it was very impactful, but the numbers, you know, and so I'm I'm already thinking about how I can make that better next time for the equity principal auditions for the EPAs. And PAL also has used this as a case study. So they also, if you're um, uh, become a member of PAL, which I really encourage anybody, you know, especially organizations, it is not a lot of money. They have so much stuff. Like they'll have examples of everything that you need to put caretaking support as, as part of your practice. And so th- this is a case study in the PAL manual as well. Can you just tell us what else you've learned, either about specific aspects of the program or also just like what other um, ideas and responses did this open up for you? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, at the beginning of the program, we had talked talked about different things. Like, for example, tech, you know, like technical rehearsals, the time when you're at the theater for like a really long time and it's like a whole thing. And then, you know, you might not see your family and there are meetings at midnight and it's crazy. Um, and we had originally been like, oh, maybe we can just have childcare on site and people can have their kids there and then they can come visit them if they want. You know, maybe during dinner break, you'd have dinner with their child. Like, that would be nice. But when we pulled that group of people, like, that wasn't helpful for many reasons, right? The kids were in school, like, whatever. It wasn't practical to, like, bring them to Midtown, Um And so it was interesting because you almost have to come with no preconceptions because it's, it varies wildly, right? If somebody has like a newborn versus a three-year-old versus like a six-year-old who's in kindergarten, like it's so different, the needs, so different. you know? And so at the end of the day, it, the, the most helpful thing was probably just like giving people stipends, right? To use for whatever it is. And so it's like, and so in retrospect, like that makes sense because that's the most flexible Right. And I think people get scared of that because they're like, oh, my God, that's going to add up. My experience has been it's always less money than I think it's going to be. And the impact is tremendous. So once again, I think the return on investment and, you know, now I've been doing this for how many every years. uh, It's been great. It's been really, really good. I mean, you're also talking about trust, right? You're trusting those people to find the resources and find the care and find the opportunities that they need rather than imposing something, however good natured that was on them. Like, yeah, that makes total sense to me. Obviously, she occupies a different space in our industry than some of our other guests, but Amber also has had plenty of ideas about practical solutions that could shift the culture on Broadway. That's so interesting because for many years, my bread and butter has been doing workshops, which I love, love new pieces, love making things from scratch. And I've been in like off Broadway, off of Broadway, not for profit land. Right. Mm-hmm. From my experience inside of it in off Broadway land, I would still say the bottom line is about community craft, storytelling and the art, like all the reasons I want to 
show up for a theater job. Then when you switch to commercial theater, capitalism, Mm. money becomes the bottom line, right? So that's a really tough transition. Some of the ways I think those environments can be healthier, it's several things, right? Like one, we need to acknowledge the schedule is not sustainable. And some shows are doing it. Like Good on Sweeney Todd for only doing seven a week and having two days off. I think that's a beautiful start. We could be like Korea and just straight up job share all the roles. So there are two or three people in every part. And they have found over there that it's not like you and I go on every night together. It's always sort of mixed up and shuffled around, which is super fun for the actor because you have three other scene partners who are super well trained in and you get to play with different people every night. So it keeps it wonderfully fresh for a very long run. Uh, But they've also found that if it shows a hit, audience members will be repeat offenders because they want to see the different cast combinations. Mm. So it's like a total win-win for producers and performers, right? We could job share. We could have less shows a week. We could have the same amount of shows a week over less days. We could have earlier curtain call, uh, curtain time. Like I would love a world where the curtains were at six. Right. No one thinks we can do these things because we've never done it. People are like, we can't do that. I'm like, oh, but of course you could. If we had curtains at six and we were done by 830 and I could go to bed at a decent hour, like me going to bed at 1 a.m. every morning is really bad for my circadian rhythms and my health. A body needs to be in bed for midnight if it wants to be thriving. Right. Uh, I would love it. You know, and if you're on your first date, you go see the show and then you go to dinner. Then you have something to mm-hmm. talk about. Yep. Oh. <laughs> uh, All of these things I think would be so helpful or any sort of combination of the above. That's one way I think could be really helpful. Another thing, like once you get to commercial land and you're dealing with money, and I've learned a little bit about what it takes and costs to produce a show on Broadway, and it's not easy. Um, Like I feel for the producers, by all means. If there was more transparency about like how the money was cut, if there was automatic royalty participation, especially when you've worked workshop something for years. It's like, I want to honor your legacy in this thing as well. It doesn't have to be a financial investment. It can be your time and your artistic investment, right? It only offers a penny on the dollar, right? It's 1%. It's nothing. And it's 1% split amongst however many people they deemed having made the thing. It's not a lot of money. <laughs> so just give it to your actors because it boosts morale. And it encourages them, They if they have a stake in it on that front in perpetuity, right, then they too want to market the show and are more eager to do all of your press or blast it all over social media or whatever. Or they feel like, yeah, if it's not just a salary and it's a legacy, you're more likely to stay inside the machine longer, which is like totally saves producers money because there's not a high turnover rate. There are all sorts of ways to keep morale high. I also think leadership can just come in on a regular basis, like just quite literally show your face. Cause there's this weird thing that happens once the show opens, like the creatives disappear and all of the leaders disappear. The producers and the company managers kind of like go away. And then they're like the wizard of Oz they're like <laughs> somewhere in the ether, but you have to contact your rep who then contacts company management who contacts the producers. And then it comes back through that telephone chain. So you're not even, sure what was said on your behalf the communication kind of breaks down i think monthly seasonal however you want to do it just check in show your face and ask your uh 
you know, ask your ship if it's okay. Just ask people how they're doing. That goes a long way to just show that you care, you know? Yeah. A way that those environments could get way more healthy is just hiring more covers. There's sort of like a union minimum that most people stick to. And I think most shows would, would do quite well to go above and beyond the coverage minimum. In particular, when we came back from COVID, which is still around, you know, mm-hmm. um, and the culture of the show must go on no matter what is gone. Actors are like, no, I don't feel good. I'm unwilling to participate in the drug culture. That's the other dirty secret about commercial theaters. There's so much pressure for the show to go on that people pop steroids and, and antibiotics like candy and and go on under really bad circumstances and then contaminate all their castmates. That culture is kind of dying out, which is great, mm. but it requires more coverage. And yes, hiring four more people costs the show, you know, 10 grand a week more, but you're never having to cancel a show, which if you cancel a show, that's a hundred grand gone right there just for one show, you know? Yeah. So it's like, it's just a no brainer. It's a no brainer. If there were so many like COVID emergencies when we came back those first, pretty much the first year, actually, I experienced this uh, personally and was just hearing rumors about it from my friends and other shows. But there was a lot of like, oh, we're flying in so-and-so from London to be in tonight's show in New York. And we're pulling so-and-so from this other tour. They haven't done it in five years, but they'll have an hour brush up and go on stage. And I'm like, wait, they're moving parts. And swinging things and holes in the floor like this is unsafe and sometimes you're on stage where I had an experience where the nine out of the 13 people were in roles they hadn't performed for at least a month or had learned them within the last 48 hours which is can be fun there's an element of again talk about cortisol rushing through your body there is a joy to that pull yourself up by the bootstraps and we all do this together but that's like a once in a blue moon experience, not a once twice a week experience yeah. that really wears a company thin. Again, you're living in a chronic stress environment, which those commercial productions don't have to be chronic stress environments. I think working towards ways to make them to make the benches deeper so that the company is supported would alleviate so much of that pain. Um, can you just tell us um if there has been a certain role that propelled a discovery in self-care strategies or needs for you? Mm, like an actual character? Yeah. Mm, what a great question. Yeah, I'm really thinking about this. You know, I'm not quite sure if it was like the character itself, but it certainly was like the scale I was suddenly playing the character on. Like mm-hmm. to play Elaine in Ars Nova for 80 people where we were sponsored by Tito's at the time and there were actual bottles of vodka on the table as well as little shot glasses. But there were shot glasses for the audience members and there were shot glasses for the actors that were pre-filled with water. But a lot of times the audience would drink our water thinking it was like a vodka shot for them, right? Mm -hmm. And then they'd feel bad that they drank our prop and they'd refill it with the vodka. So Comet off off Broadway became this like funny thing where we actually like took shots a lot while we were performing and then it just became part of the culture and we sort of loved it but then quickly when you're doing a long run we did it in a tent for a while for a year then going to Broadway you quickly learn that is not sustainable Mm -hmm. you know I quickly learned yeah I was playing these characters where I'm like well you cannot live in this way if you want to be healthy while doing this caretaking front so interesting I have played kind of like 
grand dames in the last 10 years, which also made me grow up quickly. I think I realized really fast my role in the community was also sort of viewed as that. Like I'm a matriarch character to a lot of my castmates, even if um, I'm not older than them. It's not necessarily about age per se. And I like taking care of people. Like I'm almost always the deputy Mm -hmm. (laughs) first year. And then I'm like, why did I do this again? I can't be the deputy. Um, I'm very happy. Like I'm, I'm always very happy to fight for the underdog and be the voice for the group. Yes, I agree with Amber, especially so as a person with a large amount of positional power in this world. It's critical to champion the needs of the group. But, and I say this again as a leader, I have to take care of myself so that I can show up for the group. And finding that balance is just hard. And sometimes, often for long stretches of time, it's inconsistent from one day to the next. So the point becomes less about this rigid adherence to the balance that worked once, but rather about developing flexibility so that you can rebalance as often as you need to, and also so you can model that behavior for others. I certainly have different boundaries at work than I do when I'm at home or with my friends, but I'm the same Risa Shoup in every situation. I am most effective when I can harness my whole self. And we need to co-create workplaces where that wholeness is possible for all employees, not just leadership. For over 50 years, Art New York has championed a just and thriving theatrical field through community building, education, subsidized space, and direct funding for New York's nonprofit theater makers. Our services are made possible with lead support from the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Hearst Foundation, the Leon Levy Foundation, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and the New York State Council on the Arts. Thank you. What's Off is a production of Art New York. Executive producer, David E. Shane. Associate producer, Erica Ray Barnes. Line producers, Ashley J. Hicks and Nikki Maggio. With audio engineering by Catalene Media. Music.